0: Hello and welcome to a new episode of New Books in Islamic Studies. I'm your host, Sher Ali Tari. For each new episode, we choose an important new book in the field of Islamic studies and we chat with its author. In the historiography on South Asian Islam, the creation of Pakistan is often approached as the manifestation of a vague, loosely formulated idea that accidentally emerged as a nation-state in 1947. In his magisterial new book, Creating a New Medina, State Power, Islam, and the Quest for Pakistan in late colonial North India, Wenka Dhulepala, Associate Professor of History at the University of North Carolina at Wilmington, thoroughly and convincingly debunks such a narrative. Creating a New Bandina is an encyclopedic masterpiece. Through a careful reading of a range of sources, including the religious writings of important 20th century Muslim scholars, Dhulepala shows ways in which Pakistan was crafted and imagined ...as the new Medina that was to represent the leader and protector of the global Muslim community. What emerges from this thorough examination is a nuanced and complicated picture... ...of the interaction of nationalism, religion and politics in modern South Asian Islam. In our conversation, we talked about a range of issues including... ...the rise of Muslim nationalism in late colonial India... ...the contribution of b r Ambedkar to the public discussions and debates on Pakistan... Ulama Discourses and Debates on Pakistan, and the Partition and its Afterlives. This wonderfully written and painstakingly researched book will be of tremendous interest to students and scholars of Muslim politics, nationalism and religion, and South Asian Islam. Here now is my conversation with Venkat Dulipala. Hello Venkat, how are you doing?
1: Good. Uh, Sherali. thanks a lot for having me over for this interview.
0: So Thank you so much for your time. As I was uh, saying, this is absolutely a magisterial uh, study, uh, a detailed, wonderfully written, uh, painstakingly researched, and really quite a field-turner uh, in the field of modern Islam and studies on South Asia, and especially uh, uh, the uh, study of uh, the Pakistan movement and so on. So congratulations on producing such a phenomenal book, and I look forward to this conversation. Thanks a lot, Sherali. So we have a tradition of new books in Islamic studies that our first question is always biographical where we're interested in the journey of our authors. Uh, so how did you uh, become a scholar of Islam and Muslim society's and uh, So that's the first part. And then how did you come to write this particular uh, book?
1: Uh, well, I would say that, uh, you know, there is no single straight line that one can draw to uh, neatly explain one's progression and then ultimate arrival at a destination. Uh, there are several zigzagging lines that don't always connect and yet they connect somewhere. There's also a great degree of serendipity that is involved. I would say that, uh, you know, uh, my childhood was quite formative in this regard and uh, I grew up uh, in South India, in North India, even though, you know, ethnic, you know I'm, an, I'm a South Indian. Uh, I speak Telugu at home. I, you know, I grew up speaking Hindi on the street and also speaking English in the... Uh, in the Catholic school that I went to uh, for all of my schooling years. And I basically grew up in UP, in Jhasi, where my father used to work uh, for a government company called BHEL. Uh, And the township of this company where I lived in and where I grew up had people from all over India, from all castes, religious communities, language speakers, and... uh, Uh, Growing up in Jhansi in the 70s and the 80s, you know, of course, uh, Pakistan was something which was never far from our minds, thanks to, you know, the cricket matches between the two countries, which we followed as as kids through live commentary on uh, shortwave radio. And Jhansi also happened to be home to this, uh, you know, huge cantonment called Babina, which had a really large army presence. And uh, we also had captured Pakistani tanks from the 71 war, which were on display all over the place. And I remember climbing into them and playing games with friends and all that. And then there was, of course, our neighbors, you know, and one of my, you know, the next door neighbor, a very good friend of my father and a colleague was a refugee from Lahore. You know, who had moved away after the partition. And it was not uncommon to bump into many people who fled from, you know, uh, from Pakistan uh, at the time of the partition, mostly Punjabis and Sindhis. Uh, I won't I wouldn't say that my interest in the partition was peaked from then onwards, uh, since my family really had no connection with this whole episode. But then when we moved to Hyderabad in the mid-80s, Hyderabad and South India, you know, and I entered high school, I was pretty sure I wanted to be in the humanities. And uh, I became very, very interested in this whole question of inter-community relations in India, you know, the whole Hindu-Muslim community, you know, the whole uh, Hindu-Muslim relations and problems in India. And when I was in my BA, in fact, there was a really major communal riot in Hyderabad that kept the college closed for a good chunk of the academic year. So after I finished my MA in Hyderabad, I kind of decided, after some dilly-dallying, I decided to pursue graduate studies in the US. And I landed at the University of Wisconsin-Madison in their regional studies, you know, their South Asia program. Uh, at this point in time, really, I wasn't very set on what I wanted to do. I had a few vague ideas, and then I wanted to... I was still very much in an exploratory mode. And I was taking all kinds of classes, excited at the whole range that is offered by the universities here. And as part of this exploration, I joined a class uh, on Urdu literature that was offered by Professor Meman. He was a wonderful, wonderful teacher. And this opened the world of Urdu writers for me. But this uh, class was still, you know, of Urdu… Uh, of Urdu fiction in English and… Uh, but at this time I also became friends with, uh, with this chap, Blaine Hour, who now teaches Urdu and Islam at the University of Lausanne. And Blaine was somebody who knew the Urdu script and… From him, I just learned Urdu uh, just out of curiosity, hoping to read Urdu poetry, uh, because I was always very interested in reading good poetry. And I had no idea this would be very invaluable later on. So at Madison, I finally ended up writing a master's thesis on the politics of secularism, medieval Indian historiography, and the Sufis. And, you know, this was, again, part of my growing interest in this whole question of you know, the Hindu-Muslim problem in India. And when I moved to Minneapolis, uh, that's where the idea for the PhD actually uh, kind of germinated. And again, here, it began first uh, with the idea that I should look at this... Uh, thing called the muslim mass contact program that was launched by the congress uh, party in between 1937 and 39 and it is generally agreed that the failure of this program you know marked the you know the end of the secular ideal and you know the the pakistan uh, movement or the ideal of pakistan was going to be unstoppable after that so anyway when i when i went to the field with this idea i began to do archival research uh, i figured out that this would probably be enough for writing a chapter and then after that of course i also got uh, really interested in the whole question of the pakistan movement in up and i decided to you know to radically expand the uh, you know, the scope of my study. So, well, that's how I ended up doing a PhD thesis at Minnesota, which became the basis for this book that we now have.
0: Uh, So before we went on air, Venkat, we were discussing uh, the kind of attention that this book is receiving, not only from the scholarly community, but also from the media in India and Pakistan, the print media, especially. Mm -hmm. Uh, And I think one of the reasons for that is that you really are interrupting certain dominant and long running uh, narratives of the Pakistan movement uh, in this book, and you've done so, I think, quite convincingly. So mm-hmm. what are some of the dominant narratives in the field about the creation and the conceptual idea of Pakistan in late colonial India? Uh, and in what ways does your book then challenge these narratives? Could you give us a sense of the lay of the land to which you entered into and how you sought to uh, interrupt and disrupt uh, the dominant narratives that exist?
1: Okay, well, let me try and uh, put it as uh, concisely as possible without trying, without running away or you know running into all kinds of bylaws. But if you look at uh, you know partition historiography in general, and this is a fairly uh, impressive body of work, and the scholarship has grown exponentially in the past thirty odd years, and you have uh, uh, vigorous debates in the field and very varying contending points of view. But uh, in spite of all this, there is a certain fundamental uh, agreement, uh, a fundamental assumption which unites much of the historiography which is out there. And this assumption is that uh, Pakistan, uh, or partition, seems to have happened in a fit of collective South Asian absent-mindedness, uh, that it was the tragic end result of you know, the transfer of power negotiations going, uh, going awry, uh, that it was, you know, this was hastily midwifed by a cynical, war-weary British establishment, anxious to get out of the morass of an imploding India and then leaving the unsuspecting millions to face its brutal consequences. So on the one hand you have historians who focus on the high politics of the partition to explain how the transfer of power negotiations between the British, the leaders of the Congress party such as Gandhi and Nehru, and the Muslim League represented by Jinnah, their sole spokesman, how these negotiations played out and how they collapsed in the end. And here, you know, the most powerful argument is made by the historian Aisha Jalal, whose really seminal book in 1985, you know, the Salt spokesman, uh, began with a question, you know, how did Pakistan come about, uh, which fit into the interests of most Muslims so poorly? And Jalal uh, addressed this puzzle by analyzing the struggle for Pakistan through uh, Mr. Jinnah's uh, actions, and what I say, imagined political strategy, in the cause of what she claims was a very vaguely defined Pakistan. And in a, th- in a very controversial thesis, uh, which became the orthodoxy, which has become the orthodoxy for the past 30 years, she argued that a separate sovereign Pakistan was not Jinnah's real demand, but a bargaining counter to acquire for the Muslims a political equality with the more numerically preponderant Hindus in an undivided India. And she therefore claims that, you know, the cabinet mission plan, which envisaged a weak Indian federal center uh, where Muslims and Hindus would share power equally, came close to what religion Jinnah wanted, and that this was rejected by the Congress, uh, who therefore, in, you know, Jalal explained, were the real perpetrators of the partition. Now, the folks who began to kind of push back against the Jalal thesis also focused on the high politics to basically claim that... Uh, You know, uh, Jinnah really clearly defined Pakistan, he wanted it, and that he very successfully outmaneuvered both the British and, you know, a Congress leadership consisting of these tired old men. Yet, again, uh, there was this consensus between both sides that Pakistan was nothing but, you know, as I quote, a host of conflicting shapes and forms, most of them vague. And uh, that, you know, it was at best a catch-all and an undefined slogan. Now, if you get away from the, uh, the historians of the high politics of the partition and you look at the, the scholars of the subaltern studies, ironically, uh, they too, in, in spite of being you know, great critics of great man history and the concurrent tendency to reduce South Asian history to a, to a teleological biography of the nation state, They too agree that, uh, you know, Pakistan uh, was a fairly vague idea and that few had any clear ideas as to what that goal meant. Now, if you step away from this and go to, again, regional studies of the Pakistan movement, especially those, uh, you know, focusing on Punjab and Bengal, you know, the Muslim-majority provinces which were partitioned to create Pakistan, they again point to the late popularity of Pakistan in these provinces besides its rather insufficient and uncertain comprehension. And uh, given the fact that, you know, these partition provinces witnessed, uh, you know, unprecedented human displacement and violence, uh, ethnographies exploring personal histories of ordinary people, especially women and refugees, have constituted the newest wave of, uh, of the partition scholarship. And here too, uh, what you have is this idea that, uh, that uh, you know, there is utter bewilderment and helplessness of the people at what was happening all around them as their worlds collapsed as a result of rather unfathomable political decisions at the top, uh, which happened at the twilight of the Raj. Uh, again, if you look at uh, the ideological moorings of the Pakistan movement, Uh, While the role of religious ideology and the role of uh, the ulama and the Sufi peers has long been recognized, their appeal has largely been associated with only the emotional dimension and a vague vision of Pakistan lacking any clear territorial grounding. And even uh, Mr. Jinnah, who occupies a central place in Partition historiography, his appeals to Islam uh, in the, in you know, uh, his appeals to Islam in the cause of a vaguely defined Pakistan, have largely been viewed as tactical maneuvers not based on any firm conviction. And uh, when it comes to the ulama, especially the Deobandi ulama and their uh, premier organization, the Jamatul Ulama Hind, they have or they, they appear they make an appearance in partition historiography as people who were staunch defenders of composite Indian nationalism and stoutly opposed to Pakistan. Uh, and finally, you know, uh, in a, you know this is uh, the, the the idea has been that Pakistan really remains this very vague idea. Which just happens, you know, in the end, and that you know, uh, South Asians are basically sleepwalking into the quicksands of the partition, you when know, it happens as, you know, as an event, you know, as 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 something uh, of a you know of a weather disturbance, let's say. And one of the things which you know struck me was that, given the fact that India is such a argumentative society. What you, what you see, what you find rather lacking, a stunning lacking in partition studies is the seeming absence of public debates, discussions, contestation over Pakistan. And as I began to look at the evidence, you know, one thing which became very clear was that you know, Pakistan became the most pressing political issue of the day and that it would be talked about, discussed, debated, fought over in the popular press through books, pamphlets, in public meetings, political conferences that were held in cities, towns, bazaars, and kasbars across the length and breadth of India. And uh, what I argue on the basis of my analysis of these public debates as far as Pakistan is concerned is that Pakistan is not a vague idea, but that it is thought through and that it's not insufficiently imagined, as has been argued thus far, but it is seen as, as I call it, you know, uh, an, an ideal Islamic state, and I use the title, a new Medina. Uh, this is a place where you will see Islam's rise and renaissance in the 20th century world, that Pakistan would emerge as the successor to the defunct Ottoman Caliphate, as the greatest Muslim power on the, on the planet and that it would uh, you know it would uh, it would be a extremely viable and successful state
0: so in the book uh, you focus on uh, i guess two kinds of elites one could say the political elite and the religious elite of the ulama so let's go step by step and mm-hmm. try to unpack some of the discussions of this book so as a beginning could you describe for us the context and the key events that marked the political rise of the muslim league and with it muslim nationalism in late colonial india especially in the united provinces the up that represents a key site in the early chapters of your book yeah uh
1: you know the up is the place where the the muslim league really rises uh, and it has often been said that the path to the partition was paved from the up uh, up is the place where the muslim league puts up a decent performance in the 1937 elections and you know, of course, it doesn't do very well in the Punjab, where it is dwarfed by the Unionist Party. And in Bengal, where Fazlul Haq's Praja Party, uh, you know, again dwarfs the Muslim League. In the Northwest Frontier Province, it's the Congress which wins under Badshah Khan and Khan, Khan Sahib. While in Sindh, again, you know, you have what become, later on, major Muslim League figures, people like Haji Seth Abdullah Harun, you know, who don't even want to fight under a Muslim League ticket. And it is well again, uh, you know, this is something which has been beaten to death in partitionist historiography that uh, in the UP, the Muslims, uh, the Muslim League and the Congress, they fight these elections in a largely informal alliance uh, against the, you know, the government-backed National Agriculturalist Party. And that after these elections, which, you know, this combined wins convincingly, uh, the negotiations for a coalitional government between these two sides collapses, and the Congress goes on to form its own provincial government, which is seen as, uh, you know, a major miscalculation in hindsight, especially by those who really uh, rue that the partition really happened. Now, uh, I kind of... uh, Try to, well, I do acknowledge that this is something which is really important. But what I, uh, what I do is to I get away from this, you know, this, uh, this well-trodden path to explore how the Muslim League becomes really popular uh, in the U.P., especially in a context in which uh, you know, they're being tried to be shut out of the game by the Congress, which has captured power which is trying to attract Muslim MLAs onto its side and which has also launched a new uh, propaganda campaign on the ground, which is known as the Muslim League uh, Muslim Mass Contact Program to enlist uh, maximum number of Muslims as 4 Ana members of the Congress. And uh, The rhetoric of this campaign is something that I analyze at great length, and this is something which is run as a secular socialist campaign by Muslim socialists in the Congress, uh, who said that the Congress is fighting just for political independence, uh, not just for political independence, but also for economic justice, that it stands for land for the landless, employment for the unemployed, and that Muslims need to respond to these issues instead of going by cries of Islam in danger. Uh, but as part of this uh, campaign, the, the party also f- uh, fights several by-elections which are held to Muslim seats in UP between 1937 and 39. And in these uh, elections, of course, the Congress loses. The Muslim League comes out on top. And uh, part of uh, the reason for this victory is how the Muslim League actually uh, pushes back against the Congress campaign and in this regard one of the things i also bring out is the relationship that develops between a section of the devbandi ulama and the muslim league leadership and here i bring in uh, this legendary figure in modern indian islam ashraf ali thanvi uh, and ashraf ali thanvi is somebody who uh, who pushes back against uh, uh, the muslim uh, the Muslim uh, ulama uh, or the, uh, the congress uh, the ulama who are attached to the congress who who have gone over to the other side and who are now proclaiming this whole ideal of mutahida or composite Islam or composite nationalism and believe that you know Muslims should also join the national mainstream, join hands with the Hindus, and push out uh, British imperialism. And what Ashraf Ali Thanavi does is that uh, he talks about how the Muslims should not really join the Congress, uh, that if they did join the Congress, uh, they would end up as slaves of the Hindus, uh, that they would be crushed in, a, in, a, in, a, in an undivided India. Uh, that uh, they should uh, therefore support the Muslim League, and indeed you have fatwas by Ashraf Ali Thanavi, which are you know painted in big letters and in big banners, and then they're, they're taken around to various uh, you know various by-elections which are fought around here. Uh, so uh, one of the things I kind of uh, point out is some of the doctrinal debates which happen at this time. And one of the things that Ashraf Ali Thanavi does is to uh, blow, uh, you know, to blow apart this whole ideal of Mutahida Qaumiyat, which is built up by a very reputed uh, alim on the Congress side, uh, Hussein Ahmad Madani. And Madani basically is trying to say that there is a precedent to Muslims joining hands with non-Muslims. And he goes back to uh, the prophet's uh, time in Medina and he points out that there is this covenant of Medina in which, of course, under which the Muslims and the Jews uh, come together to fight against a common enemy. And Ashraf Ali Thanwi, of course, demolishes this whole idea uh, and you know he goes at great length to, uh, to show how. It's very, very flawed. And that's something that I discuss in my book, yeah.
0: So among the most fascinating discussions in your book uh, actually relates to the contribution uh, of a uh, non-Muslim, B.R. Ambedkar, to -hmm. the public discussions and debates on Pakistan. Uh, Could you share with us some of the highlights of Ambedkar's views and the kinds of reactions uh, those views generated? Because I don't think it's something which uh, has been adequately considered prior to this uh, book that you've written. So could you share with us some of that?
1: (laughs) Yeah, Ambedkar is somebody who I call the forgotten pioneer of of partition studies, or the forgotten pioneer of Pakistan studies. Uh, it's not as if uh, Ambedkar has not been uh, mentioned when it comes to talking about the partition of Pakistan, because after all, he writes a famous, you know, famous book called Thoughts on Pakistan, and the second edition of it is known as Pakistan or the Partition of India. But uh, I think uh, thus far, yeah, Ambedkar's uh, Ambedkar's work has uh, not been analyzed uh, a- in as detailed a fashion or as uh, as closely as I do in my book. Uh, on the one hand, you have some folks who claim that. Uh, you know, the Ambedkar was basically adopting a rather Socratic uh, neutrality when it came to this whole uh, dispute over Pakistan. And on the other hand, there are those who claim that Ambedkar was somebody who was an enthusiastic supporter of Pakistan. In my own book, I kind of point out that neither is Ambedkar uh, adopting a lofty Socratic neutrality nor is he an enthusiastic supporter of pakistan on the contrary i claim that uh, you know ambedkar argues that uh, carving out pakistan would be in you know, a good riddance for india for otherwise a united india would be reduced to what he calls a sick man of asia now if you look at ambedkar's uh, you know uh, the arrangement of ambedkar's thoughts on pakistan you know it's a very revealing thing you know the initial part of the book uh, evaluates arguments in favor of Pakistan that are primarily based on affect, considering the tremendous sentimental value that uh, an overwhelming majority of Muslims attach to the two-nation theory. And here Ambedkar concedes that, uh, you know, the Muslims are a nation and that they should be granted, uh, you know, Pakistan. Now, while this may have been uh, music to the ears of uh, the muslim league supporters you know ambedkar subsequently goes on to present to the hindus uh, a series of arguments to convince them uh, that you should concede pakistan and these are arguments which would only have dampened pakistani supporters enthusiasm for the man as well as for his message and here rather than appealing to affect ambedkar appeals to reason of the hindus and this section of the book, which constitutes nearly three-fourths of the book, dwarfing the much smaller section that affirms the two-mission theory, Ambedkar seeks to demonstrate how creating Pakistan would be in the best interests of the Hindus as well as other minorities inhabiting, uh, inhabiting Hindustan. So I in, in, the, in my book, I go at great lengths to talk about how ambedkar shows that you know pakistan would be good if uh, it was conceded primarily because you know india would be hindu india could be much better defended uh, he says that look at the army that uh, you know if in, in indeed we had an undivided india the army of this kind of an undivided india would be dominated by the muslims and uh, this army could not be relied upon to uh, To either defend India against uh, let's say you know uh, um, you know Muslim countries on the frontier which could become hostile at some point or even to perform the duties of internal peacekeeping in case there is conflict by you know, between Hindus and Muslims happening in India, he also goes on to talk about how uh, you know, Hindus and Muslims. He buys into the two nation theory. He believes that, of course, Hindus and Muslims uh, have been at daggers drawn from the dawn of history ever since you know the first Islamic invasions of the Indian subcontinent happened, you know, in the 12th century. Uh, and he believes that uh, the communal problem can only be resolved if you had a division. And here again, you know Ambedkar is rather prophetic in his uh, in his vision. I mean, he calls for a partitioning of the Punjab and Bengal based on the distribution of uh, of Hindus and Muslim populations uh, in both these uh, in both these provinces and indeed, if you look at the stunning maps that ambedkar draws in which are part of his book you know and in which you have the areas of hindu india marked in saffron and areas of pakistan marked in green uh, he the the lines that ambedkar draws uh, they kind of come pretty close to the way the radcliffe line it, itself gets drawn so Ambedkar is really uh, a fairly uh, a fairly important figure, and in fact, uh, some of the things that Ambedkar says later on are also very very stunning. You know, uh, like you know, at the you know in, in 1951, for example, uh, or rather 1955. You know, in in his thoughts on in his book that he writes called Thoughts on Linguistic States. You know, Ambedkar says, you know, I was glad that India was separated from Pakistan. Yeah, I'm quoting him. I was the philosopher, so to say, of Pakistan. I advocated partition because I felt that it was only by partition that Hindus would not only be independent, but be free. If India and Pakistan had remained united in one state, Hindus, though independent, would have been at the mercy of the Muslims. A merely independent India would not have been a free India from the point of view of the Hindus. It would have been a government of one country by two nations. And of these two, the Muslims without question would have been the ruling race, notwithstanding the Hindu Mahasabha and the Jansang. When partition took place, I felt that God was willing to lift his curse and let India be one great and prosperous. Now I say these are rather stunning lines, uh, and they're not often uh, you, you don't often see them uh, in debates as far as Pakistan is concerned. Because if you look at uh, the public discourse in India today, uh, uh, Ambedkar is primarily seen as somebody who uh, who wrote a great deal against, you know, caste Hindus and is seen as a natural ally uh, when it comes to, you know, uh, when it comes to bringing about a particular alliance or, you know, Ambedkar's, uh, Ambedkar's writings. It is, you know, it is considered, you know, people think that if we kind of go by Ambedkar, what we should have is a particular alliance between indias you know uh, dalits let's say and other you know the backward castes and minorities such as muslims to kind of fight against this dominant caste hindu order but if you look at this book you know i was really surprised and quite stunned i must say to see to see that i felt that ambedkar came across as a rather conservative hindu when it came to talking about pakistan and the partition
0: so let us now return to the Muslim League uh, and its uh, uh, role in the, in the Pakistan movement. So what are some of the ways in which uh, the Muslim League leadership uh, in the United Provinces, in UP, uh, conceptualized, articulated and promoted uh, the idea of Pakistan?
1: You know, one needs to first remember that, uh, you know, the idea of Pakistan is articulated by the top leadership of the Muslim League as well as by local functionaries on the ground. In fact, I begin uh, uh, one of my chapters with uh, this pamphlet called "Just Pakistan, which is written by this very unknown functionary of the Muslim League in Bareilly, in which he, he puts out what he understands by Pakistan. And one of the things that uh, becomes fairly clear is that uh, if you look at uh, the articulation by various Muslim League functionaries, Pakistan is not being just seen as a Muslim majority state, uh, but indeed an Islamic state, which would be, which would be governed according to God's law under the Sharia. Uh, that this would be a state in which uh, you would have uh, Muslims who would be allowed to uh, to live according to their own religious laws, to kind of for the community to kind of, uh, to rise up to its highest potential, but uh, uh, one of the figures that I talk about at great length in this chapter is uh, a figure by the name of the Raja of Mahmudabad, who is a Shia landlord from UP, and the Raja of Mahmudabad, of course, conceptualizes Pakistan as indeed an Islamic state, and indeed sees it as a laboratory for Islam, where you know, the greatest experiments in Islamic modernity would be conducted, and where uh, problems of the modern world uh, could be, you know, solutions to the problems of the modern world could be found uh, by mining insights that Islam would contain. But in this chapter, what I also talk about is how Pakistan is also seen as in territorial terms, because one of the things which which has again been a truism in partition historiography is that you know there is just this very vague idea as far as pakistan's territoriality is concerned you look at the map also because you know the, the radcliffe lines they become evident only a few days after 15th august and so people are absolutely clueless as to what are the boundaries of india and pakistan so the general assumption again is that nobody knows you know where pakistan is going to happen uh, indeed you know one of the uh, uh, one of the uh, uh, one of the opinions which has been held forth is that Pakistan was a non territorial conception of nationality that there was no that the territorial conception was not inherent in the whole Pakistan idea that it was at best a a transcendent symbol of Muslim solidarity in India and that it was not conceived of territorially. And here, when I'm talking about uh, you know, some of these leaders of the UP Muslim League, I talk about how they see Pakistan in uh, territorial terms. And of course, it's pretty clear that the UP is not going to be a part of Pakistan, that it is going to happen in the Muslim-majority provinces of British India. And on the one hand, you have uh, somebody like Khaliq zaman who wants Pakistan to include entire provinces of Punjab and Bengal and here he brings in the reasons why this should be and one of the things he brings up is what you know what comes to be known as the hostage population theory that we need to that if you look at Punjab and Bengal you know you have substantial Hindu or you know Hindu Sikh minorities in Punjab and you know Hindu minority in Bengal and that these minorities of Hindus and Sikhs, non-Muslims in these Pakistan areas, would serve as hostages, in the sense that, given the fact that you also have, uh, you know, substantial Muslim minorities, which would uh, which would continue to be in Hindu India, you know, in UP, Bihar, central provinces, Madras, on and so forth. Uh, it is. Uh, you know, in order to, uh, in order to uh, safeguard their rights and interests and to make sure that a Hindu majority in India would not oppress them, it is believed that these uh, non-Muslim minorities in Pakistan would serve as, you know, serve as a reminder to Hindu India that in case uh, you, know, you oppress Muslims in Hindu India, uh, some amount of vengeance could be inflicted upon, uh, upon these non-Muslim minorities in Pakistan. So you have Zaman talking about why the boundaries of Pakistan should be, you know, should include entire provinces of uh, of Punjab and Bengal. But more importantly, what I also bring in is Liaquat Ali Khan, who was Pakistan's first prime minister, his territorial conception of Pakistan, and I point out that, you know, fairly early on in the game, uh, Liaquat is very willing to. Uh, uh, to go in for a partition of these provinces and the conception that he has of Pakistan is again very close to Ambedkar's you know, as he says you know, in the case of Punjab uh, you know, the Satluj should become the boundary uh, you know which would uh, which would uh, give out uh, you know eastern punjab to india and western punjab uh, goes over to pakistan and similarly in the case of bengal you know he believes that of course western i know yeah west bengal could go over to hindu india and eastern you know eastern 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 bengal would go over to uh, to pakistan and he's also willing to of course uh, uh, let go of calcutta and uh, of course there is this hope that you know well, Bengalis uh would want to be together, and you know, this could all become again past part of eastern Pakistan. But uh, the uh, I bring in uh, all these uh, all these things uh, when I talk about how the idea of Pakistan is articulated, discussed, debated in UP.
0: Okay, let us now uh, turn our attention to the, the Muslim scholarly elite, the ulama, and their mm-hmm. and their discourses and debates on Pakistan. Uh, Let's begin with the ulama who were actually opposed uh, to the idea of Pakistan. And uh, you al- already you mentioned Hossein Ahmad Mandani and his role mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. so on. But could you continue this line of thought by discussing some of the salient features in their line of critique and also through what sorts of technologies did they advance uh, their critique and their argument uh, in the public sphere?
1: Uh-huh. Yeah, you know, uh, the uh, ulama, uh, you know, they rely on the press columns of the newspaper, pamphlets, public meetings, to put out their point of view. Uh, And here, you know, uh, I guess you're referring to uh, some of these ulama who uh, who adhere to the congress line who kind of align themselves with the congress party and the ideal of mutahida Khomeyat or composite nationalism and here you know i want to kind of bring to your attention the importance that is placed when it comes to uh, when it comes to how uh, you know how important the press is seen uh, in this whole battle for Pakistan, and in my book, you know, I have this very interesting anecdote about a public meeting, which is addressed by Jinnah, and this is uh, this anecdote is related by Rafiq Zakaria, you know, who's a congressman and also the father of. Uh, Farid Zakaria, who is a famous columnist in this country, and uh, in that uh, in that uh, anecdote, Rafiq Zakaria tells us that uh, you know there is this public meeting which is being held in Bombay in 1939, and Jinnah shows up, and he sees this scene, and he sees that there are of course you know whole, you know a lot of people, but there is no press, and you know. Jinnah then begins to shout at the organizers and he says, uh, and this, the, the microphones are on and in the full hearing of the public, he, you know, he says, do you think I've come to address these donkeys? You know, and he says, where is the press? And he wanted to therefore have his remarks conveyed to the world, through the press. So and as Rafiq Zakaria says, you know, the organizers ran helter skelter and finally managed to arrange chairs and tables near the dais for the press representatives. So the press is important as are public meetings, conferences. And if you look at uh, the 1940s, there is a Pakistan conference being held almost every day, every week in some town in Kasbah in the UP. Now the ulama uh, who are attached to the Congress also begin to you know, use these methods. And herein I bring in a couple of important, or two or three important people here. One is this person by the name of Maulana Sayyid Ahmed Sajjad who's from Bihar, uh, and his critique of Pakistan emerges within a few weeks of the Lahore Resolution. And in this, of course, uh, Sajjad assails uh, Jinnah, you know, the Muslim League's hostage population theory. He says, uh, how can you how can you justify it uh, in terms of both real politics as well as in terms of sharia you know how can you how can you oppress or inflict violence on uh, on innocent people just because muslims are being oppressed by some of their some of their brethren elsewhere you know this is something which doesn't happen he also points out that hey where in history has it happened uh, ever before and here he brings in the whole example of palestine and he says, you know, look at uh, the, what's been happening in Palestine, and Palestinian Muslims have been, you know, have been talking about their fate to the wider, you know, Muslim world, and what has the Muslim, Muslim uh, you know, what has Muslim Turkey done? Has it ever gone on to oppress its Christian subjects? That doesn't happen really at all. And of course, he also takes on this other argument which is being put out by the Muslim League, especially to Muslims in UP and uh, other you know, Muslim minority provinces in, in India, and in which they are being asked to sacrifice themselves for the sake of an Islamic Pakistan. And he says that uh, rather than uh, the uh, Muslims of the minority provinces such as UP sacrificing themselves for the sake of Pakistan, why don't all of India's Muslims get together, overthrow British imperialism? And okay, they may be subordinated to the Muslims, but when it comes to the wider Islamic world, which is also groaning under the heel of European imperialism, once we kick the British out of India, you know, imperialism throughout the Islamic world would collapse and we would be able to liberate the entire Islamic world. And we would be rendering a much greater service uh, to the entire Islamic world.
0: So let us now uh, move to the other camp of ulama, so to say, uh, those uh, who supported the idea of Pakistan and presented Pakistan as uh, what you mentioned, uh, the new Medina, which also forms the title of your book. And -hmm. you especially focus on the thought of an important Dioband scholar, uh, Shabir Ahmad Usmani. Mm -hmm. Uh, So what are some of the key moves and themes that animated his discourses on Pakistan in the context, especially of the 1945-46 elections?
1: Yeah, shabir Ahmad usmani is again a figure who has uh, not really been uh, you know given his due when it comes to you know the uh, to partition studies you know he is a fairly striking absence uh, and here you should remember why shabir Ahmad usmani is important because firstly uh, shabir Ahmad usmani is the man who is the main force behind the objectives resolution uh, which is passed by the pakistan constituent assembly uh, Shabbir Ahmad Usmani is also acclaimed as Pakistan's first and perhaps the last only Sheikhul Islam, and he is also the person who presides over Mr. Jinnah's uh, funerary ceremonies. Uh, of course, the private ceremony, the Shia ceremonies, are held at home. But when it comes to the public, uh, the public ceremony, it's Shabbir Ahmad Usmani who presides over the state burial of of Mr. Jinnah. Now, Shabbir Ahmad Usmani is a guy who. Uh, who's also a Deobandi. Uh, and he's the one who breaks uh, Deobandi ranks uh, later on. But of course, he is following in the footsteps of his peer, Ashraf Ali Thanavi. And he provides, uh, of course, the Muslim League with uh, uh, the support of a significant section of the breakaway ulama, provides theological support for the idea of Pakistan. And also defends the uh, the leadership of the Muslim League, especially Mr. Jinnah, who is often described as a rather unobservant Muslim, somebody who was not a, a practicing Muslim, so to say. Now, Shabbir Ahmed Usmani is somebody who conceptualizes Pakistan as an Islamic state. Uh, And Usmani here points out, uh, Usmani kind of comes up with rather striking metaphors, striking ideas in his espousal of Pakistan as an Islamic state. Now Usmani points out that uh, Pakistan is only going to be the second state uh, in Islamic history, uh, which which would be an Islamic state. Of course, the first one was Medina. And in the intervening Islamic history, of course, you've had a number of states which have been ruled by Muslims. But Usmani says, these may have been states ruled by Muslims, but they were not really Islamic states. Pakistan is only going to be the second state in global history, which would be an Islamic state. And Usmani explains Pakistan's global historical significance by invoking some rather powerful metaphors from early Islamic history. And he begins by pointing out that uh, the first Pakistan, and he begins to use Medina and Pakistan interchangeably. And he says that uh, the the prophet, uh, instead of establishing Pakistan in his native Mecca, he migrates to Medina to establish that first Pakistan. The prophet's decision, he says, is based on his conviction that Pakistan could only be established in an area where Muslims could practice the religion with complete freedom, uh, for it is only in such a land that uh, the Muslim community could develop to its fullest potentiality. And given the unrelenting hostility to his uh, teachings among influential sections of the Meccan society, uh, the prophet, of course, performs the hijrah or the hijrat. And Usmani consequently argued that an Islamic state resembling Medina could only be established in in India, in a part of India, where the Muslims would be in a majority of their own. And herein, he brings in uh, another another important metaphor to kind of talk about the importance of the Muslims of the minority provinces in the creation of Pakistan. He says that just as Medina, the Prophet's Medina, was created according due to the hard work and close cooperation between the Muhajirin, that is the migrants from Mecca, and the Ansar, that is the helpers in Medina, Pakistan would similarly come into existence uh, as a result of close cooperation between uh, Muslims from the minority provinces such as the UP, as well as the inhabitants of the Pakistan areas. And Usmani also points out that just as Medina had provided a base for you know, Islam's eventual victory in Arabia and indeed the wide world beyond, Pakistan would pave the way for the triumphal return of Islam as a ruling power over the entire subcontinent. You know, As he says, uh, the whole of Hindustan would be turned into Pakistan just as the Prophet himself had turned all of Arabia into a Pakistan. Usmani also points out that, uh, you know, uh, there is, uh, Pakistan's creation was destined. You, know, you look at, uh, uh, you know, he points out Pakistan ka ghaibi ishara, as he points out, look at the way Muslim population is distributed in the subcontinent. And he says that uh, instead of Muslims being a uniform minority all over India, they are, a ma- they are a majority in some provinces that were pivotal also from a geographical point of view. Uh, and he looks and he says that you know you look at you know Punjab where you know you have a substantial majority of the Muslims, uh, which is you know, and uh, you have Lahore, which is indeed the capital of Punjab and also the putative heart of Pakistan. And he says that uh, you know it was uh, thankfully in these areas we can first create a separate Pakistan where, of course, we will have a majority. But more importantly, look at the soil of this area. This is the soil from where the greatest Islamic martyrs in the subcontinent have emerged. And here he brings in the example of Sheikh Ahmad Sarhindi, who he says launches a jihad against the Emperor Akbar, who had his own idea of composite nationalism, as he says, Muttahid Aqamiyat. And you know, this composite religion of e Ilahi that uh, Akbar tries to kind of propagate. And as Usmani points out, that uh, uh, you know, just as Sir Hindi had uh, rebelled against Akbar uh, and smashed Mutahida qaumiyat that in the modern world, you know, in current-day situation, this war against Dine Elahi or Mutahida qaumiyat uh, would emerge from the Pakistan areas. Uh, so, Usmani, of course, goes on to uh, define nationality in terms of uh, religious community, and he points out again that uh, uh, the, uh, the, the the world can only be divided on the basis of religious communities uh, and that you know its origins indeed lie in the quran itself but one of the things that uh, one needs to remember also is that uh, usmani is somebody who uh, who brings out the importance of the ulama in pakistan and here he uses a rather striking metaphor he points out that just as uh, you know muslims go on hajj and they go on hajj in these ships which are skippered by english captains and that these english captains take the ship and the and the faithful to to the port of jeddah but they stop well short of this port why? Because you know the, uh, at the port, you, know, you have some rather treacherous underwater rocks and shoals that these English captains are not quite competent to navigate. And that at this point, a certain pilot, an Arab mariner from the port, comes in his little boat, climbs onto the ship, and then he leads the ship, uh, to kind of safely uh, berth in the port of Jeddah, He points out that Mr. Jinnah is somebody like an English captain who can kind of take the Muslim community only to a certain point in time. That is, till the negotiations, constitutional negotiations with the British government and the Hindus, led by the Congress, are concerned, are over. Once Pakistan is created, uh, like that Arab pilot, you know, the ulama, are the people who are going to take over. But one thing which also needs to be remembered is that Usmani makes it clear that in Islamic Pakistan is not going to happen overnight. That this is something which will happen over a period of time as a result of deliberations, negotiations between you know, the ulama, uh, the Muslim modernists, so on and so forth. So he leaves the creation of a Islamic Pakistan to a particular future as a result of these negotiations, and I would uh, presume that uh, these uh, these debates, these negotiations, are still not over as far as the question of Pakistan's identity is concerned.
0: So, in the epilogue of this book, uh, you very poignantly discuss what one might call the afterlives of these events and the discursive operations that led uh, to the partition. So what, in your view, are some of the central observations that you present uh, in the epilogue with regards to the political aftermath uh, of partition in post-colonial India uh, and Pakistan?
1: Uh, One of the things I point out is that uh, in the aftermath of the partition, uh, of course, there is... uh, you know great euphoria about it even though of course this thing you know the partition has of course led to a colossal human tragedy number of people killed uh, number of displaced you know these these run into millions but there is uh, there is a great sense of euphoria idealism that we are going to build a new pakistan this is going to be a, a a great, uh, a great, a great, a great country, a great state, and indeed, you know, one of the things I bring out is an interview that Mr. Jinnah has with Margaret Burke White, you know, the famous photographer, and in which, uh, you know, Jinnah, uh, Jinnah makes it, uh, you know, Jinnah kind of talks about Pakistan. In, uh, in Islamic terms, uh, as he points out, you know, that this is going to be uh, the largest Islamic state, not, you know the, the largest Islam, you know, the largest Islamic nation and also the fifth largest nation in the world. Uh, now, much has been made about uh, Jinnah's 11th August speech in which, of course, he says that, you know, now that Pakistan has formed uh, Ah, uh, you have you know Hindus can be Muslims, can be Hindus, Muslims can be Muslims. The Hindus can go to their temples, the Muslims can go to their mosques, so on and so forth. And we are all now equal citizens of Pakistan. But the kind of ambivalence that Jinnah maintains, as well as you know the other leadership of the Muslim League, you know people like Liaquat Ali Khan and others, this ambivalence about whether Pakistan is going to be a modern secular state or whether it's going to be uh, some species of an Islamic state, this ambivalence continues, and uh, this is something that I kind of bring out The other thing I bring out is that throughout the Pakistan movement, what you see is <clears throat> a fairly consistent pan islamist rhetoric. you know what is pointed out is that look at Pakistan you know it is uh, it, it forms a continuum with all these other uh, Muslim countries of the Middle East, and uh, that Pakistan will become the leader of the Islamic world. And indeed, you know, once Pakistan is created, what we will see is the creation of a powerful Islamic bloc. And before long, uh, you know, of course, the idealists in the Muslim League uh, believe that the national boundaries between all these Islamic countries will drop off, and what you will have would be one. Large Quranic state, Islamic state, you know, which unites the entire Ummah together. You see some of this high idealism in Pakistan's early years. Uh, you have somebody like Shabbir Ahmed Usmani convening the World Islamic Conference, mutamar Alam Islami, in which you have, of course, delegates from different parts of the Islamic world who are invited to kind of participate. And of course, Pakistan sees, sees itself as indeed the leader of the Islamic world. Uh, that is something uh, that is that 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 you see in Pakistan's early years, and it is indeed disappointment uh, when it comes to these moves. You know they they don't quite uh, materialize to the extent that Pakistan expects, and it is uh, then uh, that you see Pakistan then making a decisive shift, or rather, not a shift, but at least a move to become a part of the american bloc becoming part of Cento, Cito, uh, so on and so forth so uh, th- these are a, a few things that i bring about but i think i end my epilogue with uh, a certain uh, with a certain episode from, uh, uh, from you know taking into account the utter- utterance of uh, of uh, of the leader of the muttahid Qaumi Movement, uh, yeah. uh, I'm blanking out on his name. Altaf Hussain. Uh, Altaf Hussain. Altaf yeah. Hussain. Yeah. In which, uh, uh, you know, it's ironical that uh, you know the the UP Muslims uh, who uh, who were at the forefront, or at least you know the the UP Muslims backing the Muslim League, who are at the forefront of the whole Pakistan movement, and who go on to uh, you know then become uh, known as Muhajirs uh, in Pakistan. Uh, and, you know, some of the most fervent supporters of Pakistan in its early stages, and also people who believe that they are really the true creators of Pakistan. You have Altaf Hussain making a speech at, you know, the Hindustan Times Summit in Delhi, saying that, you know, this was all a great mistake, and that, you know, the Mahajir should be forgiven, and, uh, uh, you know, that, uh, you know, this is the greatest, greatest mistake ever, uh, ever done in the history of the subcontinent. Uh, so I end my uh, end my end my epilogue with something like that.
0: So, creating a new Medina state power, Islam, and the quest for Pakistan in late colonial North India, published by Cambridge University Press in 2015. Uh, uh, thank you so much, uh, Venkat, uh, for your time uh, and uh, for this uh, conversation. Uh, actually, before we end, I would also like to hear from you. Uh, and this is also a tradition on new books in Islamic studies. Uh, what are you working on these days, and uh, what could be some of the things that we can expect to read from you and learn from you in the coming, uh, you know, days and uh, months and years?
1: Well, the next project I think is going to be a larger project on the partition that takes into account the all India picture. You know, it'll look at both the high politics of the partition, uh, the movements from below. It'll look at both the the concerns uh, or the issues animating. Uh, Folks in both the majority as well as minority provinces, as well as princely states. So, well, this will be my probably my big book on the partition. (laughs) That's
0: okay. The the 500 page was not book big enough. That's good. That's That's good. So, thank you so much, Venkat, for your time. And it really was a pleasure uh, reading this book and learning from it, and pleasure talking to you. I'm sure our listeners uh, would also have learned a lot uh, from this uh, conversation. So, thank you for your time and uh, for this wonderful book. Thank you, Sher Ali. So, this was my conversation with Professor Venkat Dhulabala on his brilliant new book, Creating a New Medina State Power, Islam, and the Quest for Pakistan in Late Colonial North India. Please also join us next time for another new episode of New Books in Islamic Studies. Thank you so much for listening. Take care, stay well, and this is your host, Sher Ali Tareed, signing off.